everyone, and welcome to another episode of Chicago Sports HQ Chatter. Joined, as always, with Cole Little. This is Dustin Reese. And Cole, how was your weekend? It was great, man. How about yours? Uh, can't complain. Uh, nice, relaxing weekend last weekend. Uh, can't say that about this weekend, as my son's got another baseball tournament this weekend, and it's supposed to be 95 degrees all weekend. Oh, yeah, that's the story of my life right there. That kind of weather. So join the club. <laughs> I'll, take, I'll take it, though. Yeah. But uh, let's start today's show with the Chicago Cubs, who, well, I'm just going to put this lightly. They continue to impress. Uh, they went 19-8 and eight in the month of May, which was the best record in the National League and only behind Tampa Bay, who was 21-7 and seven for the month of May. Uh, they took the first two games from the Padres, which I don't think many people expected them to do that. Their bullpen, uh, yes, their scoreless streak came to an end, but their bullpen continues to pitch lights out and continues to show why their bullpen's been the best bullpen for the last month plus. And keep in mind, they're doing all of this with probably the most injured roster in baseball right now where they have 14 players on the IL with a large chunk of those 14 players playing significant roles on the team at some point this season. And then you have guys like Patrick Wisdom now stepping up and a lot of other players stepping up. I think it's time that, I mean, you and I, and I know a lot of people criticize some of the moves that Jed Hoyer made this offseason, but I think it's time that we should stop the criticism on that and just compliment him and actually give him some respect for the moves that he made because obviously he saw some value in some of the pieces that he acquired and these pieces certainly are performing for this team right now. Uh, yeah, I mean, they're playing well, you know, I, I would probably choose to compliment David Ross before I would really choose to compliment, um, Jed Hoyer, but, yeah, I mean, I, I'll compliment Jed Hoyer on some of the moves he's made. Um, but, you know, really this team just has seemed to work things out significantly from its early season struggles. Um, you know, through the first few weeks of the season, it looked like it was just more of the same with a team that, struggled to get on base and just kind of lived and died by home runs. Um, and strangely enough, ever since the Cubs started getting hurt, they've really changed that. They've actually been better since they started having injury issues for whatever reason. And, yeah, they're just, you know, getting on base more, um, better hitting with runners in scoring position. A better two out hitting, you know, putting together big innings. Um, I mean, I know so far in this Padre series, they've scored all their runs via the home run ball, but that hasn't really been too much of a trend as of late. And um, yeah, I mean, uh, and another key thing is the bullpen. Uh, is is flourishing. I mean, I wonder what Theo Epstein's thinking from afar as he notices, you know, the Cubs bullpen doing so well because that was like the ultimate bugaboo of his 
uh, post World Series tenure with the Cubs is this the, the Cubs never seem to have a great bullpen and obviously Craig Kimbrell is back to being the Craig Kimbrell Craig Kimbrell of old um, <clears throat> maybe you know pitching about as well as as we've seen since since maybe back when when he was with the Braves. Um, Ryan Tapera has been amazing. Uh, you know, so, so many of their Andrew Chafin. Uh, I mean, heck, they they didn't even need Shelby Miller, a guy we we talked about who um, we thought could potentially be a key member of that uh, of their middle relief. He's he's since been released. Like Tommy Nance and yeah, and Justin Steele, who we've been talking or the Cubs have been talking about him for the past couple of years as people who they thought would contribute in the near future. But not only did they contribute sooner than I think some expected, they become people that David Ross counts on now in tough situations. Right. Yeah. I mean, the young guys have stepped up or in Nance's case, not necessarily a young guy, but in a guy with an inexperienced guy at the big league level. Um, but yeah, Keegan Thompson's been solid. So is Steele, Justin Steele. But um, yeah, great bullpen. And, you know, they just seem to keep bouncing back from or just really not letting the injury issues affect them. I mean, of course, David Bodie just separated his shoulder the other day, and now Patrick Wisdom has hit three home runs in two days, starting at third base in place of Bodie. You know, of course, Sogard's having to, to play a significant role with both Bodie and Horner out. Um, you know, they, they've had to call up – Rafael Ortega, um, who is who is like the breakout star of um, spring training. Uh, yeah, I mean, but you know, and also, I mean, Sergio Alcantara is a guy they started. They've they've added to the mix in addition to Rafael Ortega. Um, so many kind of makeshift players and and. Um, on-the-fly roster adjustments that Hoyers had to make, which I'll give him credit for because, I mean, it, you know, it can be easy to deal with all of these injury issues that have seemingly happened all at once. But, you know, it really hasn't seemed to affect the Cubs too severely. I mean, you know, if, like I said, if anything, they've been better since, you know, mid-April or, or late April when they started – um, suffering all these injury issues. And, of course, Anthony Rizzo just missed nearly a week, and he came back and got a, got some hits last night. And, um, yeah, I mean, you know, the, and they're playing about as well as they've played, uh, you know, since since the summer of, of 2019. So, you know, we'll see if they can – um, keep this going and, you know, continue to compete with the Cardinals atop the NL Central. But, um, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll certainly give Hoyer credit for a lot of the moves he make, he's made. But 
also want to give credit to Ross because, um, you know, I, I think he's done a solid job of, of helping to turn this team around since it looked like they were doomed for, you know, more of the same through the first couple weeks of the season. I think at some point the injuries are going to catch up to this team, especially if they continue to get hurt at the rate they have been. And when you look at the schedule in their stretch of games that they have the next two weeks, I think that eventually the injuries will catch up to them at some point. But they do have help on the horizon as both Jason Hayward and Jake Marisnik are on their way to Omaha, I believe, either tonight or tomorrow to start a rehab assignment with the Iowa Cubs that will probably last the rest of this week and anticipation of the team maybe rejoining Chicago, rejoining the Cubs in San Diego since they'll be kind of halfway out west at that point in general. But I kind of I kind of pointed this out in um, my takeaways column that I wrote this morning that I consider this Chicago Cubs team a lot like the major or the movie Major League. And when you look at that movie Major League. You had the Cleveland Indians who had like a terrible history, a terrible past, and then they signed just a bunch of basically what you call like washed up street players. So nobody gave them a chance. And all of a sudden they turned it around and had the season they had. And you can kind of look at the Cubs office off season the same way where a lot of the guys that picked up this off season have had some good seasons in the past, but they were still considered, I guess, cast offs whose best days were behind them. And they were considered basically just a bunch of role players that this team has established and put together. But these role players now are becoming starters like Matt Duffy and Patrick wisdom. They're becoming starters who are producing the bullpen has guys like Ryan Tapera and Andrew Chafin who are having the, their best years as a pro now nine and 12 years into the league. And it's just amazing that when you have a, players like that that have had success in the past. What do all these other teams miss in free agency that just makes them think that their best days are behind them? Um, I have no clue. I mean, that's that's like the great mystery of what separates a, you know, a great GM from a uh, lackluster GM, I guess, is, is being able to add those pieces that round out a roster. <clears throat> but yeah, I mean the Cubs have definitely benefited from adding, you know, with from Hoyer adding some of these guys who were maybe just sort of afterthoughts at this point. Um, you know, including Matt Duffy and other guys currently hurt. Uh, and yeah, you mentioned Marisnik. Um, and yeah, I mean they've just you know benefited from adding. Um, these guys to the roster. I mean, now we're seeing uh, Patrick Wisdom make an impact. So, yeah, certainly Hoyer has done did a good job in the offseason of um, adding some of these complimentary pieces. I mean, obviously, you know, arguably better than uh, anything Epstein did, you know, comparatively in terms of, of adding some um, – you know, key reserves and just some key veterans to round out the the uh, roster, at least in his last few seasons in charge uh, with the Cubs. And, yeah, I mean, you know, the, the future looks bright for Hoyer uh, leading the way for the Cubs front office, that's for sure. But, 
Yeah, I mean, a key thing to me is mostly seeing their bullpen and and how well it's pitching. Because I mean, again, that's been the ultimate bugaboo since you know going back to the 2017 season is they never really seem to have or at least especially the 2018 season is they never really seem to have um a great bullpen you know had various middle relief woes uh had middle relievers they brought in who you know whether they trade for them or sign them who proved to be disappointing but yeah, now I mean this bullpen is is you know been has been lights out as of late, um, and of course the rotation, you know Davies has gotten better. Um, I mean another issue, you know we saw Williams, Trevor Williams show some signs of potential improvement, and now he'll he's missing time after having emergency appendix surgery. So yet another. Uh, injury situation, health situation for the Cubs. Um, and then, of course, you know, Hendricks has been pitching better. Arietta's is still doing pretty well. And and um, we'll see if Alzali will continue to ascend. But, yeah, I mean, just, you know, they, they've been better in so many different facets as of late. And all of it has been with this kind of makeshift roster and so many different guys on the injured list. Um, so it's been pretty, pretty crazy and pretty impressive to see. And now we'll switch over to the White Sox for a couple minutes here. Who, I mean, the White Sox still have one of the best records in the American League, but they they've been struggling a little bit lately, and they're struggling with the Cleveland Indians so far this week as they've lost two of three so far in this series after having Monday's game postponed. Uh, they're not hitting as well as the, as they were earlier in the season. That's obviously going to happen during a 162-game season just because teams go through peaks and valleys all the time, and you have – Guys like your mean Mercedes right now, who after being one of the hottest players in baseball for the first six weeks of the season is all of a sudden all for his last 20. And now he's searching for answers right now. And it just seems that ever since Tony La Russa made those comments about Mercedes, that he's kind of gone into a little bit of a tailspin. So we kind of got to wonder if La Russa maybe got in Mercedes head a little bit, which I, that's the one thing I mentioned too, when we were discussing that a couple of weeks ago, like the conversations that, LaRusa needs to have with these players need to be have need to be held behind closed doors. And I kind of think that he kind of get got in Mercedes head a little bit because his play has been really declining the last week and a half, two weeks. And then you have guys like Liam Hendricks who basically called out all of the national media outlook. I think it, over the weekend saying it doesn't matter how many wins we rip off in a row against how many good teams we play. We're still not going to get the same kind of attention that, the Cubs get if they win one or two games. Mm -hmm. Well, he needs to realize that the Cubs have been the team in Chicago for the longest time. And just because the White Sox started to get good the last couple of years, it's going to take more than one or two years for the White Sox to overtake the Cubs. Yeah, I thought those comments were pretty interesting and, and funny. But, yeah, he's, he's already noticed that Chicago's – primarily a Cubs town. Um, and, yeah, I mean, not to mention the White Sox have just, you know, had really one good season last season uh, within the last decade or so. 
whereas the Cubs have been, you know, been World Series contenders for several seasons, um, you know, over the course of the past handful of years or so. So, yeah, it makes sense right now that the Cubs um, would get more attention. There would be more hype surrounding them. But that's, you know, pretty much always been the way it way it is. Uh, maybe it'll, you know, give the White Sox extra motivation to, you know, want to be better than the Cubs and outperform the Cubs this year. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, they, they got the four-game sweep of the Orioles under their belt. Um, then, you know, one, only won one of three against the Indians this week, uh, including, you know, they won the opener of a doubleheader on Memorial Day and then lost the next two. So, you know, but they're, play, they're still playing pretty well. I mean, still hitting the ball well enough. I still think they're the, you know, for now, the best team in uh, the AL Central. And, you know, we'll just see if they can keep continue to play pretty well despite, you know, not having uh, Eloy Jimenez or Louise Robert. Um, but, yeah, I mean, the Mercedes thing is troubling, the fact that he's not hitting the ball as well. You do have to wonder if LaRusse's comments about that, about the um, swinging, at, swinging at a pitch that he – that Larusa didn't want him to swing at situation and hitting a homer. Um, I have to wonder if that whole situation has has kind of gotten in his head and uh, ruined his whatever momentum he had. But um, I mean, thankfully for the White Sox, it seems like that situation kind of blew over after a little while. But again, could be lingering effects for Mercedes. Uh, but yeah, I mean, we'll, you know, they got the the Tigers coming up at home for four games, so uh, yeah, that so obviously they should be able to do well in that series. Um, you know, and we'll, we'll see if they can, we'll see if they can, uh, if the Southsiders can bounce back after um, dropping two of three to the Indians. And of course, with today's game being postponed, um, they'll go into the today's game against the Indians being postponed. They'll go into the Tiger series with a day off and um, yeah, we'll see what they can do. And I I haven't really paid much attention to the White Sox minor leagues or minor league system. So I can't really give fans too much of an insight on them, but you kind of look at how the Cubs minor league system is right now. And you had the Iowa Cubs who got off to the great start. They're starting to struggle. You have the Tennessee Smokies who might be 10 and 14, but it appears that they're on the verge to turn things around as Brennan Davis was called up to double A yesterday. Chase Strump was called up to double A yesterday to go along with Miguel Amaya, Christopher Morell, who were already there. Uh, Braylon Marquez should be returning to double A shortly. So that's going to give Chicago five of the organization's top 12 prospects are going to be sitting in Tennessee. 
Uh, Self-Ben's been struggling a lot lately, but obviously when you're losing some of your best players to double-A, that's going to happen. But the one team that's really turned it around is the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, who are now the only team in the Cubs system that actually have a winning record. And the surprising thing is guys like Yisan Santana, who the Cubs acquired in the U Darvis trade, hasn't played a game in over a week. Ed Howard is going on 10 days now without seeing any action. And you had 2019 international free agent Kevin Maid. He's been playing shortstop the last couple days. And it's just amazing that you're starting to see all these players that did not see action for over a year starting to get this action in Myrtle Beach. And it shows you how deep the Cubs system is. And I don't care if their system is ranked number 21 by Baseball America and by all these other outlets that have the Cubs system ranked, whatever it is. I truly believe the Cubs system is a top 15 system. And by season's end, I would not be surprised to see them as a top 10 farm system just because they have so much talent that nobody has seen in the past year because of the pandemic. And they also have all these international players like Cesar Hernandez, who got last last international signing period, or, who's, or not Cesar, uh, Christian Hernandez, who they signed in the last international signing period who nobody knows about. But as soon as he gets on the field this year, they're going to know why everyone has been so high on this guy. And it's just these players that the Cubs have right now are going to be something special. And whether they keep them long-term or not, or whether they use them for trade chips later on, the Cubs are going to have a very solid team in the next couple of years for long-term success. Yeah. Well said they, yeah, I think their, their farm systems probably underrated. Um, and yeah, good to see Myrtle Beach, uh, the Myrtle Beach Pelicans, a team in my home state, see them playing well. Um, yeah, I think the future is bright uh, for the Cubs in, in terms of, you know, the young players they have. They have a lot of noteworthy youngsters waiting in the wings, including Ed Howard, who you mentioned. So, um, yeah, just – you know, great to see minor league baseball back in action and, uh, you know, still kind of wonder what lingering effects different farm systems will have from last year's season getting canceled, last season getting canceled. Um, but, yeah, just, you know, good to at least see the Pelicans playing well and and some other uh, – and, you know, some of, some of the Cubs noteworthy um, – prospects doing well so far this season and the last thing we can touch on for uh baseball here is the ncaa tournament which is set to begin on friday and when we kind of touched on it last week we we talked about how illinois could have a couple teams or the chicago area i should say not just illinois but the chicago area could have a couple teams make the ncaa tournament based on how their conference tournaments would wind out well, it ends up being that Notre Dame is the only team that is going to be making the NCAA tournament from the Chicago area, and they actually did not win their conference tournament. They beat Virginia Tech in the first game 8 nothing, and then got walloped by Virginia 14-1 to in the second game, and that put them out of contention for the conference tournament championship. That 14-1 to loss also took them from being one of the top eight seeds overall, which – 
I still think they got hosed on it when you look at the body of work and when you look at how well they played in the ACC all season. I think their performance during the regular season alone should have given them a top eight seed. But instead, they ended up getting the 10th seed in the tournament, so they will at least host a regional round. They will have one of the most difficult regionals, unfortunately, as you have a a loaded Central Michigan team as the four seed in that regional. You have a very experienced Michigan team who earned the two seed. They are the defending runner-ups from when they had the last NCAA tournament. You have three seed UConn in their regional. And then if they do get lucky enough to get through that regional, chances are they're going to have to go down to Starkville, Mississippi to take on the seventh seeded Mississippi State Bulldogs who have one of the best pitching staffs in the country. So not only did Notre Dame get hosed on the seed that they got for the NCAA tournament, they probably have the toughest route of any of the national seeds just to get the home. Yes, pretty tough, pretty tough path. Um, I'm sure the ACC being weak this year didn't really help matters. Um, I mean, you know, Duke just won the ACC tournament and they entered the tournament with after, you know, putting together a sub 500 regular season conference record and then they go on to win the ACC tournament. Um, so, yeah, not not great. And I think as of now, only three ACC teams are ranked, Notre Dame, NC State, and Duke. Uh, but, yeah, not um, – that certainly didn't help matters, I don't, I don't think. I mean, there were several teams in ACC that proved to be disappointing. Um, so that probably didn't help Notre Dame's resume in terms of getting a top eight seed. But, yeah, and also losing 14-1 to against – uh, to Virginia, you know, is pretty good, not great team um, this year. That also didn't help. So yeah, Virginia went two and zero in that in their in that pool pool A, and then advanced. So advanced out of the out of pool play. Um, we can have a conversation another day about how much I hate that the ACC baseball tournament format. Uh, for my years as a Clemson fan, seeing that weird pool play format. Um, but anyway. I watched it for the first time this year, and I hated it. I, I, thought, I thought all 15 teams should have been in instead of 12. And then if you do that, obviously you just have the number one seed has a first round buy, and then you just do a standard 215-314 bracket the rest of the way where all the winners advance. I just – the whole pool play thing to me, just I hate it. I hate how all the conference tournaments are, how they do the double elimination format and whatnot. I think they should just all just do a straight bracket-style format where if you lose, you're done. Instead of giving teams these second chances where all of a sudden they lose the first game like 10 nothing, and all of a sudden they somehow make their way through the rest of the tournament, and then you get a situation like I think it was uh, Jacksonville in the Atlantic Sun who finished the season 6-24. and but they go 4 0 in the conference tournament just because it's a double elimination tournament and they found a way to win it. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I've, for what it's worth, you have that from time to time in college basketball tournaments too. I don't, yeah. it's not necessarily the double elimination that I kind of like that. I mean, I, I, I do like that. I mean, that seems to be a fixture of college baseball is double elimination since that's how the, 
the entire uh, NCAA tournament is. I just the ACC baseball tournament stands out in particular because the weird pool play, which has been a fixture now for several for quite a while, and it just has it's weird because it's like it makes it to where you know certain games don't matter. Like if you you know, like for example, Clemson entered their pool as you know the 11 seed. So, I mean, really, if you're not a top four seed because there are four three team pools, yeah. um, if you lose a game, if and you're not one of the top four teams in a pool, then you're automatically out because the tiebreaker of all the teams go one and one. If all three teams go one and one, goes to the team with the best seed. So, like Clemson lost to Louisville on the very in the very first game of the ACC tournament, and then they were done. But yet they had to turn around and play another game the next night that didn't matter So for them. So, yeah, it's just a weird, uh, weird format. But – and, yeah, and they're – I mean, they're actually – because Syracuse doesn't have a baseball team. They're, te- they're a 14 oh, yeah. ACC, ACC team. So it would actually be easier for them, since it's an even number, to do something where – they gave like a first round bye and yeah, had maybe a single elimination to yeah, first round bye for like first round bye for the top two seeds and then have the bottom yeah, twelve do a single division. elimination. Yeah. Yeah, the bottom twelve do single elimination and then when you get to that final eight, then you can do like two pools yeah. of yeah, and I don't I mean uh, fans have been clamoring that they do something like that for years because it just it's just weird to have these games were, you know, it doesn't really matter. Um, I mean, like another example is Miami and Florida State played a game uh, on the final day of pool play, and both of them had already been eliminated. So it was just like, you know, a meaningless kind of game, just maybe a resume booster, I guess, for the NCAA tournament. But um, anyway, yeah, Notre Dame lost you know, losing by double digits to Virginia, uh, you know, couldn't have helped matters. But um, at least they get to host a regional first time in quite a while for that. But, yeah, if if they do win their regional and, you know, assuming Mississippi State, which doesn't really seem to have that challenging of a regional, gets out of their regional, Notre Dame will have to go to Starkville, and that is a really tough place to play. Um, That's maybe the nicest – Duty Noble Fields, maybe the nicest um, baseball stadium. That's Duty Noble Field at Polk DeMint Stadium. That's maybe the nicest college baseball stadium in the country. Um, It's called the Carnegie Hall of College Baseball for a reason, and those fans really pack it out game in and game out. So that'll be tough. I mean, Notre Dame really needs to hope that somehow – a team pulls off an upset in that Mississippi State regional. Um, but yeah, Notre Dame's got their work cut out for them in their regional. So um, we'll see if they can get it done. Uh, but yeah, I mean, they certainly had a case for uh, getting a top eight seed, but um, the weakness of the ACC probably didn't help their their cause there in that regard. I'm gonna see if I can pull up the bracket here to see who's in Mississippi bracket. Oh, it's um, VCU, Campbell, and Samford. 
So not nothing too uh, competitive there. And then Notre Dame, the will take on Central Michigan to start off. And then they get UConn and Michigan. Yeah. And I guess, like you were saying, and um, how the format is, and how you hate the pool play format. That also is a disadvantage to Notre Dame, too, because had they done the standard double elimination like the NCAA tournament does, I don't think Notre Dame loses a second game in that tournament. I think they go in and take that 14-1 to loss on the chin and then come back and run the rest of the table. So that's another thing that you have to wonder where if the ACC tournament did the double elimination format as opposed to the format they do. Would we still be having this talk now, or would Notre Dame have gotten through that conference tournament to secure themselves a top eight seed? Right, yeah. I mean, they, you know, it certainly went against Notre Dame because, of course, Virginia went 2-0 and in that pool. Um, and that's why they they got to advance on if, again, if the three teams finished in the pool or all went 1-1, one and one, then Notre Dame would have had the tiebreaker. But, yeah, instead that's just what happened, and Duke – came in red hot after sweeping Clemson at Clemson to close out the regular season, and they did not lose a game. Went 2-0 and in pool play, then beat Virginia in the semis, in the semifinals, and then won the championship game one to nothing over NC State in a nail-biter there um, and won their first-ever ACC tournament. So, uh, yeah, congratulations to them, but um, – yeah, of course Notre Dame had the won the regular season title, but uh, yeah, now we'll see how well suited the ACC is um, to accomplishing something in the um, in, in postseason play. I mean, they got eight. The ACC got eight teams in, which certainly isn't too shabby. Only one behind the SEC, which got, got the most with nine most of any conference, but yeah, just not, not uh, really as top heavy, top heavy as ACC usually is. So um, we'll see how Notre Dame fares um, in the tournament. Cause they're certainly, I think set up to, uh, to do the best of any ACC team. Um, you know, in fact, they're the only team that ACC team that got to host a regional. So, uh, we'll see how they do. And now we'll head to the Chicago Bears for a couple minutes where there hasn't been much news regarding Chicago the last couple of weeks. As this is typically the downtime of the NFL offseason as you're getting through rookie minicamp and now you're in OTAs through the rest of this month and then training camp starts in July. I mean, outside of the Justin Fields talk about whether whether he will be ready or whether he won't be ready week one, that's pretty much the only news that – You've been hearing out of Chicago lately, but today, or even I shouldn't say even today, but earlier in the week, there was reports that the Chicago Bears are bringing in a veteran offensive lineman and a very good veteran offensive lineman for that matter. And Morgan Moses, who was a right tackle for the Washington football team, uh, Washington elected to sign Charles Leno Jr., a former Bears offensive lineman, which made it very easy for them to part ways with Moses, which 
in my opinion, is a huge downgrade because Moses has been with the Bears, not with the Washington football team for the past six years, and he has not missed a single game in the last five years, starting all 96 games. And if he comes into Chicago and if he ends up proving that he's still the player he is, even at 30 years old, not only does that give the Bears flexibility in terms of you can have Larry Borum now develop at a slower pace instead of start instead of starting two rookies on the offensive line, but it also gives Chicago the flexibility to move Jermaine Effetti to the left side, and it gives the Bears options to have other guys move around because Moses would be a huge upgrade to this Bears offensive line. He's a durable player. He doesn't get hurt. He's been around the league for a while, and he obviously knows what he's doing on the left side or the right side of that line. Yeah, that would be a great addition. Um, it's kind of surprising that Moses is still a free agent at this point. I know that's sort of been a theme of the offseason is, you know, notable offensive linemen, you know, taking a little while to, to sign or to receive enough interest to, to you know, sign a new contract. Um, and he's one such player. So, you know, the, the Bears should probably – or should definitely, I think, pull the trigger there and, and get a contract done uh, and bring in Moses because that could be huge for their offensive line. I mean, you know, needless to say, that was the weak link for the Bears this past season. Um, you know, it's something that should be a priority for Ryan Pace is ensuring that the offensive line is as good as it can possibly be uh, to prevent you know, this this season from getting derailed, um, especially if Justin Fields is going to get some playing time. You certainly don't want your young, you know, rookie quarterback, the future of the franchise, to have shoddy protection like Trubisky and Foles had last year. So, um, yeah, because this past season, the offensive line play was pretty shaky uh, throughout for the Bears. Um, and yeah, adding Morgan Moses, like you said, a guy who never gets hurt, um, a reliable veteran, only 30 years old, not too old, uh, especially by offensive tackle standards. You know, he's a guy who could come in and, and serve as a mentor for some of the younger offensive linemen, uh, some of the rookies that the Bears have, have brought in up front. And uh, yeah, that could be a huge addition. Yeah, and it's kind of refreshing for a change to actually see the Bears focusing on offensive line. And I know quarterback play was inconsistent the past two years. I don't think it was as inconsistent as some people thought it was last year. I mean, Mitch Trubisky was very good his first three games, and then he was very good to end the season. It was really only that seven-game stretch in the middle where Nick Foles was named the starter where that inconsistent play was, so I don't think quarterbacking was actually the main issue last year. It's always been the play of the offensive line that's been the most consistent, and see what the Bears have done in free agency by bringing back Ifedi, see what they did in the draft by drafting Tevin Jenkins and Larry Borum to build for the future and now bringing in a guy like possibly Moses. It's very refreshing to see them actually focus on the offensive line, but also adding competition to other spots because typically competition brings out the best in players and if they perform at their best during training camp and perform at their best during practice to secure the starting spot 
you can only imagine what they're actually going to do on the field when you have that unit of five together. Yeah, exactly. Um, and you know, that, that's a lot of times that's a make or break thing for a team is whether or not as great passport, it has, you know, solid, consistent pass protection and, you know, the, the bears, uh, nearly, I mean, well, I don't know how close they came, but, you know, they were in talks to acquire a veteran, a superstar quarterback and Russell Wilson a few months ago. And it seemed to be uh, a big reason why it was because Wilson was tired of not having great pass protection, because that seems to be a, a theme for the Seahawks, at least it has been in, in recent seasons. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that's such a huge thing for, for quarterback play. And, um, you know, who knows what Trubisky would have accomplished this past season if the O-line was better. Um, and Foles as well. I mean, especially Foles because he's not a mobile, um, you know, super athletic quarterback in the way that Trubisky is. So, um he certainly could have benefited from better pass protection in the midst of his, you know, downward spiral. Um, but, yeah, I mean, that that's something that, you know, hopefully the Bears will have in place. Um, you know, Andy Dalton, when he was with the Bengals, I mean, they consistently had a pretty good offensive line, um, at least, you know, throughout the years with the Marvin Lewis years where they were playoff contenders. And, you know, with the Cowboys last year and the Cowboys regularly have a solid offensive line. So it'll be important to give him some good pass protection. And again, I mean, especially fields, you know, preparing for the future with him. Should he get playing time um, in the regular season? Obviously, he'll be suiting up in, in the preseason regardless. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, get you know, getting – um, a reliable offensive line with a good mixture of veterans, proven veterans, and um, you know, notable youngsters with bright futures. That's that's certainly key for this year, and could be key for you know Brian Pace's future with the franchise. Yeah, now going um, now we'll switch over to the NBA, where we're actually not going to be talking about the Chicago Bulls, but. More so the big bombshell that dropped lower to go in Boston where Danny Ainge has decided to retire as president of basketball operations in Boston. Uh, throughout his tenure as president of basketball operations there, the Boston Celtics have been an annual playoff contender. They won a couple of NBA championships under his, under his guidance and I'm not going to say they were the Celtics of old with Larry Bird, but they were the closest to being the Celtics of old with him running the show, just constantly making the playoffs, constantly contending for the division championship and a lot of that. I mean, that move was surprising in itself, especially after Boston made the playoffs again this year, even though it hasn't gone smoothly for them in the playoffs. But the biggest news I think out of the whole situation was Brad Stevens. Brad Stevens was the Celtics head coach the past six years after having a terrific college career with the Butler Bulldogs, comes into Boston and really doesn't miss a beat. Boston's made the playoffs every single year that he's been a part of the team, including, I think, one or two conference finals. But now he's stepping away from the head coach of the, as the Celtics to 
take over Danny Ainge's role as president of the team. So that was a surprising move in itself. I'm not saying that Stevens isn't going to be successful at that role because he's proven to be a successful coach. But being a president of basketball operations is a completely different situation than being a head coach. So not only am I curious to see who he brings in as the head coach, it's going to be interesting to see how he handles his new role at Boston. Yeah, I I very rarely like audibly, you know, exclaim something after getting a notification on my phone, but like I've said something whatever I said uh, out loud, you know, in shock after seeing the series of notifications um I got pertaining to this Celtics situation this morning. I, I just I'm blown away by that. I mean, I figured that the writing was maybe on the wall for Danny Ainge after nearly 20 years in charge of, you know, of him moving on or retiring or, or whatever. But to see Stevens, I, I mean, it, it made sense for him to get the position to replace, you know, to replace Ainge and run the show, run the front office. But it would have, uh, it would have made more sense and I think a lot of people felt like when this news was breaking that it was going to be for him to continue serving as the head coach and also, you know, run the show in the front office. Like, you know, for example, we saw Doc Rivers do with the Clippers in recent years. Um, but no, I mean, he's he's stepping down from head coaching and going into something he's never done before. So um, really crazy development. And I mean, even though Danny Ainge technically retired, you know, I'm already seeing reports that he could go out to uh, to Utah and join the Jazz. Of course, he famously was a great college player with BYU. Um, you know, he's he's from Oregon, but uh, played his college ball in Utah, and um, he you know, and could potentially. Uh, head out there and, and join join up with the Jazz. So we'll see if that happens. But yeah, I mean, I, I figure maybe the writing was sort of on the wall that his his time had come to an end in Boston. You know, he had some great years. Obviously, his his biggest impact was, um, you know, making the deals necessary to set up the big three in Boston. Um, in 2007, and of course, the Celtics won a championship their first year with the big three of uh, Kevin Garnett, Paul Pierce, and, and Ray Allen uh, winning a championship in 2008, and Danny Ainge was in charge then. And, you know, the a thing with the Celtics is, I mean, I think it's fair to say that they've underwhelmed in recent seasons. I mean, really throughout the Brad Stevens tenure, they were arguably underwhelming, um, you know. I mean, at least in the playoffs, had a series of letdowns. Uh, could never seem to get past Le- LeBron James, you know, when he was uh, back with Cleveland, and you know, now in recent seasons, just can't seem to to necessarily win a, a big series. And of course, with Stevens as head coach, they never got to the um, NBA finals like they did twice with Doc Rivers in charge. Um, so, yeah, I mean, Celtic, you know, 
Stevens in charge there, or uh, rather serving as the head coach in Boston since 2013. And uh, now it's come to an end, and he's the president of basketball operations. So he's running the show in the front office. And it sounds like Jason Kidd, who's obviously been head coach, and he's now an assistant with the Lakers. He's a candidate. Lloyd Pierce, who got fired by the Hawks as their head coach a few months ago, he's he's a candidate So is to get the head coaching job. Um, so we'll see who they go with. But, yeah, I mean, you know, for Boston, it's just been uh, sort of a series of disappointing playoff appearances, and it seems like that's maybe taking a toll on Stevens. But it's just wild to see a guy who is project, projected as maybe being the next Greg Popovich, you know, early on in his Celtics tenure, now just stepping away from coaching altogether um, and, and trying his hand at running a front office. And, you know, so we'll see how that works out for the Celtics. I mean, obviously, Stevens is a really smart guy. Um, I just think, it, I mean, it, it was just stunning to find out that he's – stepping away from coaching completely. I mean, you would think he would maybe look to, you know, have control over the front office while continuing coaching. Uh, but no, he's just flat out replacing, leaving his position and replacing Dan Danny Ainge, um, which, again, is wild for somebody who is perceived as being the next, you know, Greg Popovich, the next really high IQ, uh, successful head coach who, you know, won championships and was a head coach uh, for decades. And, I mean, now at the age of 44, he says he's 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 been worn down by coaching. I mean, obviously we'll have to see how long that lasts. I mean, I'm sure at some point, unless he does an amazing job running, running the Celtics front office, that he'll go back into coaching. You know, Ainge famously uh, – did a good job, did a pretty good job, decent job as the head coach of the Suns, um, but then seemed to maybe do a better job, um, you know, because, I mean, he retired from the Suns and was the head coach not that long after that uh, and did a pretty good job, but then moved to the front office for, with the Suns and, and um, you know, was uh, – or, or rather, moved to a front office position with the um, with the uh, Celtics after you know a brief or uh, being serving as a commentator for a few years. So he he took that leap from being a head coach to a director of basketball ops. So we'll see if um, Brad Stevens can make it work for the Celtics and get them back to the finals. And then next uh, topic here, we got a couple more here that'll be short, but we're going to the Chicago Fire now. Where if you asked me when the Major League Soccer season started, if the Chicago Fire would be not only one of the worst teams in the Eastern Conference, but possibly the worst team in MLS, I probably would have laughed and said it was a funny joke. But here we are, um, seven games into the season. The Fire are 1 1 and 5. They have four points tied for Cincinnati with for last place in the Eastern Conference. But I really do think that this is the worst team in the MLS currently. 
and they may have gotten hosed against Montreal over the weekend where they had a game time or what looked to be a game time goal in extra time, but it was ruled offsides or something happened. I don't even remember what the call was, but it took the goal away from the fire and basically took one point away from Chicago. So now they have three weeks off until their next game as we get that international break. But this Chicago fire team has to do some serious soul searching. They have to figure out what's going wrong. They have to get back on track and they need to figure this out without their team here because during this three week period, not everybody on the team is going to be together because they're going to be playing in different parts of the country during this time. So this is a very challenging situation in Chicago right now. And for a team that showed so much promise last year and for a team that appeared to be on the way up, it's just going back to what it's been like the past five years in Chicago where they just can't win soccer games. Yeah. I mean, they've yet to, um, or at least not for a while, they haven't scored multiple goals in a game, you know, offensively. They're just really, really... They have scored a total of four goals this season and a total of one goal in their last five games. Yeah. Yeah, so that's not good. <laughs> that's There's not good. How many times per game scoring one goal in five games? One goal in five games. Yeah, they haven't scored multiple goals since um, April 17th when they scored two. So, yeah, that, that's a terrible stretch. Um, and, yeah, it's looking like it's going to be maybe a rough year for the fire. Um, you know, the, yeah, like you said, some serious soul searching is what they're going to have to do during this international break and then hope to turn things around once they get back in action on June 19th against Columbus. Yeah, and then last topic we'll touch here quick because I do have a meeting I got to get to at work in about two minutes here is uh, the Chicago Sky. They got off to that quick 2-0 and start, and they looked like they were about to get off to a promising season, but now they just hit a roadblock. They lost five in a row, including two straight close games, but – Outside of that, what have you seen from the Chicago Sky lately? Yeah, um, I mean, they just lost a heartbreaker to Phoenix on a buzzer beater from half court, which Kia Nurse hit uh, for the Mercury. Um, the Mercury closed out the game on a 14-3 to run and, and won by a point. So that was obviously a tough loss. Uh, but, yeah, it really hasn't been – going too particularly well. I mean, since we were last on there, they lost two in a row to the – Sky lost two in a row to the Sparks and then, you know, just lost to the Mercury. So, um, hasn't been a great start to the season. Uh, but Candace Parker is still hurt. And, you know, if, if she comes back and gets reacclimated quickly, I mean, they could potentially turn things around. Uh, but it's all the time Cole and I have for you today on this episode of Chicago Sports HQ Chatter. Uh, take care, Cole, and we'll be in talk next week. All right, man. Talk to you soon.